Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody come back, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked room today, didn't you? How do the dead come back, Mother? What's the secret? The Middle Toe of the Right Foot by Ambrose Bierce From Can Such Things Be? by Ambrose Bierce Copyright by the Neil Publishing Company by permission of the publishers. 1. It is well known that the old Manton house is haunted. In all the rural district near about, and even in the town of Marshall a mile away, not one person of unbiased mind entertains a doubt of it. Incredulity is confined to those opinionated persons who will be called cranks as soon as a useful word shall have penetrated the intellectual domain of the Marshall advance. The evidence that the house is haunted is of two kinds. The testimony of disinterested witnesses who have had ocular proof, and that of the house itself. The former may be disregarded and ruled out on any of the various grounds of objection which may be urged against it by the ingenious, but facts within the observation of all are material and controlling. In the first place, the Manton House has been unoccupied by mortals for more than ten years, and with its outbuildings is slowly falling into decay, a circumstance which in itself the judicious will hardly venture to ignore. It stands a little way off the loneliest reach of the Marshall and Harriston Road, in an opening which was once a farm, and is still disfigured with strips of rotting fence and half covered with brambles, overrunning a stony and sterile soil, long unacquainted with the plough. The house itself is in tolerably good condition, though badly weather-stained, and in dire need of attention from the glazier. The smaller male population of the region, having attested, in the manner of its kind, its disapproval of dwelling without dwellers, it is two stories in height, nearly square, its front pierced by a single doorway flanked on each side by a window boarded up to the very top, corresponding windows above not protected serve to admit light and rain to the rooms of the upper floor. Grass and weeds grow pretty rankly all about, and a few shade trees, somewhat the worse for wind, and leaning all in one direction, seem to be making a concerted effort to run away. In short, as the Marshall Town humorist explained in the columns of the advance, the proposition that the Manton House is badly haunted is the only logical conclusion from the premises. The fact that in this dwelling, Mr. Manton thought it expedient one night, some ten years ago, to rise and cut the throats of his wife and two small children, removing at once to another part of the country, has no doubt done its share in directing public attention to the fitness of the place for supernatural phenomena. To this house, one summer evening, came four men in a wagon, Three of them promptly alighted, and the one who had been driving hitched the team to the only remaining post of what had been a fence. The fourth remained seated in the wagon. Come, said one of his companions, approaching him, while the others moved away in the direction of the dwelling. This is the place. The man addressed it did not move. By God, he said harshly, this is a trick, and it looks to me as if you were in it. Perhaps I am, the other said, looking him straight in the face and speaking in a tone which had something of contempt in it. You remember, however, that the choice of place was with your own assent left to the other side. 
Of course, if you're afraid of spooks. I'm afraid of nothing, the man interrupted with another oath and sprang to the ground. The two then joined the others at the door, which one of them had already opened with some difficulty caused by rust of lock and hinge. All entered. Inside, it was dark, but the man who had unlocked the door produced a candle and matches and made a light. He then unlocked the door on their right as they stood in the passage. This gave them entrance to a large square room that the candle but dimly lighted. The floor had a thick carpeting of dust which partly muffled their footfalls. Cobwebs were in the angles of the walls and depended from the ceiling like strips of rotting lace making undulatory movements in the disturbed air. The room had two windows in adjoining sides, but from neither could anything be seen except the rough inner surfaces of boards a few inches from the glass. There was no fireplace, no furniture, there was nothing. Besides the cobwebs and the dust, the four men were the only objects there which were not a part of the structure. Strange enough they looked in the yellow light of the candle. The one who had so reluctantly alighted was especially spectacular. He might have been called sensational. He was of middle age, heavily built, deep-chested and broad-shouldered. Looking at his figure, one would have said that he had a giant's strength. At his features, that he would use it like a giant. He was clean-shaven, his hair rather closely cropped and grey. His low forehead was seamed with wrinkles above the eyes and over the nose these became vertical. The heavy black brows followed the same law, saved from meeting only by an upward turn at what would otherwise have been the point of contact. Deeply sunken beneath these, glowed in the obscure light a pair of eyes of uncertain colour, but obviously enough too small. There was something forbidding in their expression which was not bettered by the cruel mouth and wide jaw. The nose was well enough, as noses go. One does not expect much of noses. All that was sinister in the man's face seemed accentuated by an unnatural pallor. He appeared altogether bloodless. The appearance of the other men was sufficiently commonplace. They were such persons as one meets and forgets that he met. All were younger than the man described, between whom and the eldest of the others who stood apart there was apparently no kindly feeling. They avoided looking at each other. Gentlemen, said the man holding the candle and keys, I believe everything is right. Are you ready, Mr. Rosser? The man standing apart from the group bowed and smiled. And you, Mr. Grossmith? The heavy man bowed and scowled. You'll be pleased to remove your outer clothing. Their hats, coats, waistcoats and neckwear were soon removed and thrown outside the door in the passage. The man with the candle now nodded and the fourth man, he who had urged Grossmith to leave the wagon, produced from the pocket of his overcoat two long, murderous-looking bowie knives, which he drew now from their leather scabbards. They are exactly alike, he said, presenting one to each of the two principals, for by this time the dullest observer would have understood the nature of this meeting. It was to be a duel to the death. Each combatant took a knife, examined it critically near the candle and tested the strength of the blade and handle across his lifted knee. Their persons were then searched in turn, each by the second of the other. If it's agreeable to you, Mr. Grossmith, said the man holding the light, you will place yourself in that corner. 
He indicated the angle of the room farthest from the door, whither Grossmith retired. His second parting from him with a grasp of the hand which had nothing of cordiality in it. In the angle nearest the door, Mr. Rosses stationed himself, and after a whispered consultation, his second left him, joining the other near the door. At that moment, the candle was suddenly extinguished, leaving all in profound darkness. This may have been done by a draught from the open door. Whatever the cause, the effect was startling. Gentlemen, said a voice which sounded strangely unfamiliar in the altered condition affecting the relations of the senses. Gentlemen, you will not move until you hear the closing of the outer door. A sound of trampling ensued, then the closing of the inner door, and finally the outer one closed with a concussion which shook the entire building. A few minutes afterward, a belated farmer's boy met a light wagon which was being driven furiously toward the town of Marshall. He declared that behind the two figures on the front seat stood a third, with its hands upon the bowed shoulders of the others who appeared to struggle vainly to free themselves from its grasp. This figure, unlike the others, was clad in white and had undoubtedly boarded the wagon as it passed the haunted house. As the lad could boast a considerable former experience with the supernatural thereabouts, his word had the weight justly due to the testimony of an expert. The story, in connection with the next day's events, eventually appeared in the advance, with some slight literary embellishments and a concluding intimation that the gentleman referred to would be allowed the use of the paper's columns for their version of the night's adventure. But the privilege remained without a claimant. 2. The events that led up to this duel in the dark were simple enough. One evening three young men of the town of Marshall were sitting in a quiet corner of the porch of the village hotel, smoking and discussing such matters as three educated young men of a southern village would naturally find interesting. Their names were King, Sancha and Rossa. At a little distance within easy hearing, but taking no part of the conversation, sat a fourth. He was a stranger to the others. They merely knew that on his arrival by the stagecoach that afternoon, he had written in the hotel register the name of Robert Grossmith. He hadn't been observed to speak to anyone except the hotel clerk. He seemed indeed singularly fond of his own company, or, as the personnel of the advance expressed it, grossly addicted to evil associations. But then it should be said in justice to the stranger that the personnel was himself of a too convivial disposition, fairly to judge one differently gifted, and had moreover experienced a slight rebuff in an effort at an interview. I hate any kind of deformity in a woman, said King, whether natural or acquired. I have a theory that any physical defect has its correlative mental and moral defect. I infer then, said Rosser gravely, that a lady lacking the moral advantage of a nose would find the struggle to become Mrs. King an arduous enterprise. Of course you may put it that way, was the reply, but seriously, I once threw over a most charming girl on learning quite accidentally that she had suffered amputation of a toe. My conduct was brutal, if you like, but if I had married that girl, I should have been miserable for life and should have made her so. Whereas, said Sancho with a light laugh, by marrying a gentleman of more liberal view, she escaped with a parted throat. 
Ah, you know to whom I refer. Yes, she married Manton. But I didn't know about his liberality. I'm not sure, but he cut her throat because he discovered that she lacked that excellent thing in a woman, the middle toe of the right foot. Look at that chap, said Rosser in a low voice, his eyes fixed upon the stranger. That chap was obviously listening intently to the conversation. Damn his impudence, muttered King. What ought we to do? That's an easy one, Rosser replied, rising. Sir, he continued, addressing the stranger, I think it would be better if you would remove your chair to the other end of the veranda. The presence of gentlemen is evidently an unfamiliar situation to you. The man sprang to his feet and strode forward with clenched hands, his face white with rage. All were now standing. Sancho stepped between the belligerents. You are hasty and unjust, he said to Rosser. This gentleman has done nothing to deserve such language. But Rosser wouldn't withdraw a word. By the custom of the country and the time, there could be but one outcome to the quarrel. I demand the satisfaction due to a gentleman, said the stranger, who had become more calm. I have not an acquaintance in this region. Perhaps you, sir, bowing to Sancho, will be kind enough to represent me in this matter. Sancho accepted the trust somewhat reluctantly, it must be confessed, for the man's appearance and manner were not at all to his liking. King, who during the colloquy had hardly removed his eyes from the stranger's face and had not spoken a word, consented with a nod to act for Rossa, and the upshot of it was that the principals having retired, a meeting was arranged for the next evening. The nature of the arrangements has already been disclosed. The duel with knives in a dark room was once a commoner feature of southwestern life than it is likely to be again. How thin a veneering of chivalry covered the essential brutality of the code under which such encounters were possible, we shall see. 3. In the blaze of a midsummer noonday, the old Manton house was hardly true to its traditions. It was of the earth, earthy. The sunshine caressed it warmly and affectionately with evident disregard for its bad reputation. The grass greening all the expense in its front seemed to grow, not rankly, but with a natural and joyous exuberance, and the weeds blossomed quite like plants, full of charming lights and shadows and populous with pleasant-voiced birds. The neglected shade trees no longer struggled to run away, but bent reverently beneath their burdens of sun and song. Even in the glassless upper windows was an expression of peace and contentment due to the light within. Over the stony fields, the visible heat danced with a lively tremor, incompatible with the gravity which is an attribute of the supernatural. Such was the aspect under which the place presented itself to Sheriff Adams and two other men who had come out from Marshall to look at it. One of these men was Mr. King, the sheriff's deputy. The other, whose name was Brewer, was a brother of the late Mrs. Manton. Under a beneficent law of the state relating to property which has been for a certain period abandoned by an owner whose residence cannot be ascertained, the sheriff was legal custodian of the Manton farm and appurtenances thereunto belonging. His present visit was in mere perfunctory compliance with some order of a court in which Mr. Brewer had an action to get possession of the property as heir to his deceased sister. By a mere coincidence, the visit was made on the day after the night the Deputy King had unlocked the house for another and a very different purpose. 
His presence now was not of his own choosing. He had been ordered to accompany his superior, and at the moment could think of nothing more prudent than simulated alacrity and obedience to the command. Carelessly opening the front door, which, to his surprise, was not locked, the sheriff was amazed to see, lying on the floor of the passage into which it opened, a confused heap of men's apparel. Examination showed it to consist of two hats and the same number of coats, waistcoats and scarves, all in a remarkably good state of preservation, albeit somewhat defiled by the dust in which they lay. Mr. Brew was equally astonished, but Mr. King's emotion is not of record. With a new and lively interest in his own actions, the sheriff now unlatched and pushed open the door on the right, and the three entered. The room was apparently vacant. No. As their eyes became accustomed to the dimmer light, something was visible in the farthest angle of the wall. It was a human figure, that of a man crouching close in the corner. Something in the attitude made the intruders halt when they had barely passed the threshold. The figure more and more clearly defined itself. The man was upon one knee, his back in the angle of the wall, his shoulders elevated to the level of his ears, his hands before his face, palms outward, the fingers spread and crooked like claws. The white face, turned upward on the retracted neck, had an expression of unutterable fright. The mouth half open, the eyes incredibly expanded. He was stone dead. Yet, with the exception of a bowie knife, which had evidently fallen from his own hand, not another object was in the room. In thick dust that covered the floor were some confused footprints near the door and along the wall through which it opened. Along one of the adjoining walls, too, past the boarded-up windows, was the trail made by the man himself in reaching his corner. Instinctively, in approaching the body, the three men followed that trail. The sheriff grasped one of the outthrown arms. It was as rigid as iron, and the application of a gentle force rocked the entire body without altering the relation of its parts. Brewer, pale with excitement, gazed intently into the distorted face. God of mercy, he suddenly cried. It's Manton. You are right, said King, with an evident attempt at calmness. I knew Manton. His end wore a full beard and his hair long, but this is he. He might have added, I recognised him when he challenged Rosser. I told Rosser and Sancha who he was before we played him this horrible trick. When Rosser left this dark room at our heels, forgetting his outer clothing in the excitement and driving away with us in his shirt sleeves, all through the discreditable proceedings we knew with whom we were dealing, murderer and coward that he was. But nothing of this did Mr. King say. With his better light he was trying to penetrate the mystery of the man's death, that he had not once moved from the corner where he had been stationed, that his posture was that of neither attack nor defence, that he had dropped his weapon, that he had obviously perished of sheer horror of something that he saw. These were circumstances which Mr. King's disturbed intelligence could not rightly comprehend. Groping in intellectual darkness for a clue to his maze of doubt, his gaze, directed mechanically downward in the way of one who ponders momentous matters, fell upon something which there, in the light of day, and in the presence of living companions, affected him with terror. In the dust of years that lay thick upon the floor, leading from the door by which they had entered, 
Straight across the room to within a yard of Manton's crouching corpse were three parallel lines of footprints. Light but definite impressions of bare feet. The outer ones, those of small children. The inner, a woman's. From the point at which they ended, they did not return. They pointed all one way. Brewer, who had observed them at the same moment, was leaning forward in an attitude of rapt attention, horribly pale. Look at that, he cried, pointing with both hands at the nearest print of the woman's right foot, where she had apparently stopped and stood. The middle toe's missing. It was Gertrude. Gertrude was the late Mrs. Manton, sister to Mr. Brewer. Hi, this is Tony Walker. I would like to remind you that you can become a patron of the Classic Ghost Stories podcast. Patrons get access to the library of member-only stories, and I'm doing a new member-only story at least once per month at the moment. You'll also get the joy of supporting me in the work so I can continue to produce the regular podcast. You can become a patron by signing up at www.patreon.com forward slash Barkid, B-A-R-C-U-D. So if you did feel that you wanted to support my work, it would be great to have you on board at Patreon. That was the middle toe of the right foot. I hope I've got the foot right. Yeah, I think it was by Ambrose Bierce, and that was recommended by 23 Split 23 just in April this year, which isn't very long ago at all. It seems longer ago that it was recommended. I've done another one today, so I thought I'd just do a shortish one because, as you know, I'm going camping, so I want to have them ready to come out. I hope 23 Split 23 isn't offended if I wonder whether that is his or her real name. I'm only saying that because I can imagine if they were playing out and the mother called for them for tea, like my mum would, my mum would call me for tea, Tony, it's tea time, fish fingers and beans. We didn't just have that, to be honest. I remember one time I was in my shorts and I ran through a big patch of nettles and I was halfway through before I realised I was really stung and then I had to go through it to get out and... Oh, I was quite unwell with them. Anyway, that has got nothing to do with this story at all. Now, I wonder if you remember Dwayne Hayes. Now, Dwayne Hayes is from Arkansas, and I did one of his stories about a dragoon, which I thought was a soldier, but in fact is a big gun. And he's he's uh, he came on. He lives in the Middle East now, and he has such an accent. I loved his accent. I wanted to talk like him. He Either him or Matthew McConaughey or somebody like that. Oh, no, I don't know. Christopher Walken, he would do. There are plenty of accents I do cover, such as Sir Anthony Hopkins, Sir Richard Burton, and then there's a guy called Douglas Murray who's very patrician in English, and he writes for The Spectator, and I was listening to him on a podcast. Michael Fassbender, I would like I like some really nice, good, strong Glaswegian accents. I love a Dublin accent. Other ones, do I covet Australian, South African? So there's plenty of accents I want to talk like, all from all over. My point of mentioning Dwayne is that he's a big Ambrose Bierce fan and he sent me some recommendations for stories as well. And you can see why, really. I, I'm astonished I've only ever done one story in the two and a half, going on three years we've done this podcast. 
have only done The Moonlight Road. And Ambrose Bierce, is, his stories are so well crafted. I mean, he was a journalist as well. He was a really famous guy in his time. He wrote an article about disappearances. I did a, a, an article when I was writing for Medium about disappearances, drawing on some of his stuff. And then, of course, mysteriously, he went to cover Mexican Civil War and disappeared. Dun, dun, dun. I don't think there's anything mysterious about that. It's fairly easy to disappear in a war, I would imagine. So I'm not going to say anything about Ambrose, apart from what a guy he was. He reminds me of O. Henry in that his, his uh, short stories are so well-crafted. So let's have a think about this one. One of the things you find about Ambrose Bierce's story is that he's a bit sneaky, but we let him away with it because it's so well done. And what I mean by him being sneaky is he knows a lot of stuff, he just doesn't tell us. He writes from this third-person omniscient, sort of like a, cam a film camera, you know, he isn't any of the people in it. It's not like speaking to any of the characters' voices. So we can't accuse them of deceiving us. It's him. He knows everything and he doesn't tell us. And he reveals it drip by drip by drip. And so we're like, aha, 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 all the way through. But it is a tiny bit sneaky. So it's set in the rural southwest, undeveloped rural part of the USA. It was published in 1890, but... Given that people write from their memory, it was probably represents about 1870 or even earlier. Certainly it was a time of the wildish West in that people were still solving problems by dueling with bowie knives. So the first part is a brief description of the house itself and its setup, the tragedy that happened there and the reputation of it being haunted. Fair enough. The next bit is very cinematic in that we have four unknown and unintroduced men. He knows exactly who they are, he just doesn't tell us doesn't tell us, the reader, who they are. And they come up, and there are clues. So it's, this is very much show, not tell. We just see the scene. So that's why I say about being cinematic. And you know my theories about all this show, not tell stuff, which wasn't the case in earlier writing, particularly in Victorian writing, or even earlier, from the earliest days of the novel. It was it, It's cinematic. It's the growth of the cinema. So we're used to seeing things. So the injunction comes. We must show things. Well, Ambrose Bierce does that really well. So we see this and we see the evil-looking guy. And we, because of the descriptions, we are now making pictures and ideas. We're coming to theories in our mind about what's going on here. And he gradually reveals it to us at the end. So at the end, it's revealed this is going to be a duel with Bowie, Bowie knives. But we don't know anything about why it is and why it's there and anything about it. So it's a kind of a, a suspense asking questions. We want to know questions it's a very common thing in a story to raise a question because there's something about the human being that just wants to know the answer to that question, no matter in many ways how banal it is. But we don't, we don't, we're like, what, what's going on here? That's the question. And what actually happens isn't clear to us till later either. But what actually happens when you look back is that they're playing a trick on him. They want to get out of the fight. So they trick this bloke. And remember, so far, we don't know why or what they're fighting about. They trick him into being alone, locked up in the dark in a haunted house. And I often wonder if that had gone to plan or not gone to plan. He would have gone and found them and he would have beaten the pulp out of them, wouldn't he? Or them two were pulp, like big pumpkins. Now, later on, it becomes clear why they've done this and the irony of it that he is the murderer of the, he is the creator of the ghost story, if you like. So it's a kind of ironic thing. Remember, one of the functions of ghost stories, as we see at the very end, is to right wrongs, is to is to come and do revenge. You know, it's a very ancient theme, this. So that's part one. The evil house, the four unknown, unknown men turn up. It becomes clear there's going to be a duel. We don't know that their plan is to lock him in 
at that point. That only becomes clear at the very end. But once once we do realise it, it's, oh yeah, of course that's what they were doing. Yeah, that makes sense now. But all we get is a show of what's happened. So it, it leaves a lot of questions. This is very much Ambrose Bierce. If you think the other one I did, The Moonlit Road, very similar kind of idea then. Lots of pictures of what's happening. Very cinematic. Um, but no. Whereas another writer might have been tempted to fill in the details and explain it away before a beast just doesn't really. He just just neatly ties it up, providing the the least possible explanation, but sufficient for us to go aha and have the penny drop. So the second scene starts with these three blokes, young men, who were prigs, one would say. They 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 the topic of their conversation is appalling about women and this and and it turns out, oh yeah, I know who you're talking about. You're talking about that lass you chucked over because she had a toe missing. And he goes, aha, now what we don't realise is that I didn't realise at this point that this stranger, the evil-looking stranger, is fuming because this it's a reference to him and murdering his wife and kids. Now, question, plot hole, what the heck was he doing back there? Why did he go back there? Now, at first they don't recognise him and Beer says he was a stranger to them. And that's not true. Uh, and later on, it's it's explained that he was recognised. So that's that's a bit of a lie, a bit of a fib to us, really, a misleading thing. But we'll we'll let him off because it helps the story build up. But the truth is, he, he wasn't a stranger to them. They knew, but it wouldn't have served the twist twist at the end um, for them to disclose that. So he had to keep it from us. I mean, I think the twists running to the end are that um, he, they did know him that he is the man who murdered them and and the final twist is the ghost killed him when he was just supposed to be locked in the room. So I think that's three twists, which isn't bad. And the final part is the third part when King goes back and he's been at the, the do the previous night and it seems a massive coincidence that somebody is going to go and look at this derelict place. The sheriff is going with Brewer, who is the heir of whose sister was murdered. It's important that it's him because he can recognise the footprint of the missing toe, but we realise that King would know that because that was disclosed at the meeting of the three chaps being rather nasty at the hotel. And it's like, yeah, okay, that's a bit of a coincidence, really. And it's also a massive coincidence that King is the deputy. And maybe it would have been more believable and less coincidental and less straining credulity, credibility, whatever, if King hadn't gone back, it'd been somebody else. But I think the fact that King is back just ties it neatly in. And sometimes we can accept coincidences because this is a fable. We've got to remember, stories are not real. Hey, that might come as news to you, but these are not, these are artificial. Life doesn't work like this. The purpose of stories is to make us feel that life is a lot more predictable than it is because life is, as you know, I was talking to somebody the other day, you know, when I look back at my life, it's just been, it's been one thing after another with a lot of accidents and happenstance and no real progression in any logical way. If my life was a story, they'd just bin it because, and that's true for most of us, our, our lives do not follow a story pattern, but the purpose of stories is to kind of put shape onto it and to tell us how we should behave. So the purpose of stories is to tell us how we should live. That is the whole function of stories. They are social, social control in a lovely way, but they entertain us and they 
through our playing on our emotions, they make us conform to patterns of human behavior or they reinforce acceptable patterns of human behavior. That's what they always were. I think they still are, to be fair. So it's a very neat story, one, two, three acts and, you know, three twists and neatly put together. I don't think there's any single description or element in that that's superfluous. It's so lean. It's really fantastic. And you can forgive him the, the, the you know, the plot holes. Why did Lado, as we say, why did Manson come back? Not Manson, but Manston. That's a different story completely. And uh, why why doesn't he tell us it recognised him? And how come King was the one of all people to go back the day after? The only thing I don't get is your man uh, strip the strip off. I suppose one is we used to. I used to live a very rough street, and uh, in the summer, every now and again there would be men fighting, and they would they would always rip their shirts off and go, "Come on, come on, come on! I love you, I love you," you know, which is very amusing. But yeah, they'd always rip their shirts off. Um, so I think it's something to do with that. Just it's not even slightly more genteel. I mean, a knife fight's a knife fight. There's nothing heroic about it, is it really? Even if you want to call it a duel, it's just some blokes pulling blades on each other. Let's not dignify it. So anyway, you said, yeah, why did he do that? And why did he escape without his clothes? And the only thing I can think of about that is when with a witness, the farm boy saw them, he saw this guy in his shirt sleeves. It may have been intended to be a reference to a ghost in that. Oh, is this a ghost? You know, that might be the only thing. Ambrose will have known. You know, I don't think anything got past Ambrose. Until the very end, of course. Is he still alive? Is he like Elvis or or King Arthur? Are they kind of just still waiting somewhere, ready to come back and save us? I don't know what Ambrose would save us from. Poor storytelling, perhaps. Anyway, that's about it. I've done two of these today. I've got a new phone today, so I've been setting that up. It's Saturday. Sheila's at Glastonbury at some spiritual sister's crystal thingy. Um, which I love Glastonbury actually, but uh, I wasn't invited. It's a fair way from us, but I wasn't invited because um, I'm not a spiritual sister or a sister at all. I do have a sister, a half sister, but I'm not one. Anyway, I, I can't think of any other anecdotes and personal sharings. So you take care. By the time you hear this on the podcast, I will be camping in Wales. I hope it doesn't rain. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody comes back. Isn't that so? Isn't that so? My podcast host, Captivate FM, have recently introduced something which means I can run adverts in the podcast. I don't want you to see this as a nuisance. I want you to see this as a way that I can be funded to free up more time to produce more content for you. If you know anyone who would like to advertise on this podcast, where we currently get around 10,000 listens a week, please get in touch via the email in the show notes.